Good morning. What a blessing it is to be here. I cannot say that enough that God has blessed us to come sing praises to Him, to hear His Word, to rejoice in another day of life that He has given us. Take your Bibles if you would. Let's stand one more time in honor of the reading of the Word of God. We're going to go to Romans chapter 14. We're going to read verse 19 through verse 23. Our focus and our text for this morning will be actually in verse 21. Paul writing to the church, dealing with how to handle non-essential, non-doctrinal issues between brothers and sisters in the church and coming to an agreement on it or how we ought to discuss those things. And I think we've learned a lot from this passage and how to have grace and how to love one another rather than argue about things. And so we're going to take some time to maybe discuss some of those subjects. Romans chapter 14 and verse 29, the Bible says, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat, or because of meat, or over meat, which is the subject at hand, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. Verse 21, It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in the thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is of sin. Let's bow our heads. Father, I ask for your help now. I ask for your presence among us, that you would... Give us open hearts and open ears and open minds, Lord, to the subject we have today. Guide me, guide my words. Let all that is said be true and to your glory. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Sunday morning to me is sacred ground. It is a time that we worship corporately, and I think there is much blessing and much good in that to sing together with your brothers and sisters in Christ. But it is also time to proclaim the Word and a time to proclaim Christ, and we seek to do that here. What drives my ministry is hopefully the same as what drove Paul's ministry. The one thing I want to be known is Christ and Him crucified. That we have a Savior who gave Himself for our sins so that we would not have to face the judgment of God and eternity in hell, but we can be forgiven, we can be with Him in heaven forever. That is message number one of the church, right? We proclaim the Savior. And that, let that be the message that comes on Sunday mornings. But we would also be remiss if in preaching the cross and in preaching our Savior that we did not apply what He has done for us and the instructions that He's given us into our everyday lives as well. In fact, most of the Bible is about how we ought to live now that we've been saved. And if that doesn't come out on a Sunday morning, I think the church is failing. I want this pulpit to be a discourse or a guide on the social culture around us, not only for each and every one of us, but for the children sitting in the pews. I want them to hear what the Bible says about what they are facing. 
and yes, on a Sunday morning. And so from time to time, we, we take time to handle subjects like that, and today's going to be the case. And we've been looking at how to handle non-essential or non-doctrinal issues, subjects that can come up, and maybe in and of themselves they're small things, but if they're not handled right, or if they become a, a point of contention, they can become big things, right? And they can cause problems in the church. And that's what Paul is dealing with here. And if you want a background on it, I don't have time. You can find it on the website and listen to that message. But that, what, that is what Paul is dealing with here. And such is the case with the subject that we're going to talk about today. I've had many conversations about this subject. I've taught lessons on it at my previous church, but I have not done so here. I've taken all that time, almost six years now, can you believe it? We're going to be six in a couple months, which is awesome. (laughs) But uh, I've taken all that time because I want to address this subject. I want to handle it correctly. I want to handle it honestly. And most importantly, I want to handle it biblically. And that subject is drinking alcohol. What does the Bible say about alcohol and how, to resp- how do we respond? It's a non-doctrinal issue that can become a big issue if it's not handled correctly, right? And I've seen, I've seen it do just that. I've heard it defended. I've heard it condemned, sometimes in a very intelligent manner, but quite honestly, most of the time I've heard it preached with preconceived ideas. And it sounds harsh, but I think it's true. It's very easy to preach one way or another on a subject when we bring our ideas or our feelings to Scripture. I don't want to do that, not with a subject like this. So, yeah, here on a Sunday morning, we're going to talk about that. We have to be faithful to Scripture. I cannot make verses say one thing or another. What I want to do is take what God has given us here and then formulate our own opinions or our own stands on what the Bible says. In the end, it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what the Bible says, right? On everything. So we take what the Bible says and then we build on that foundation. And I also understand this might be a touchy subject. It might bring up a lot of questions or you have your own strong feelings or your own past experiences with that subject, which is exactly what Romans 14 is about and what Paul is instructing. You see, we all bring a mix of life here, right? All from different backgrounds, different experiences. And while we have unity in the doctrinal stands, we ought to have unity in the non-essentials or matters of discernment. And this is one of them. I ask that you hear me out. Listen to what I have, what the Lord has laid on my heart. And understand that this is a matter of discernment that I don't want to grow beyond that. So let's have some open minds and open hearts and let's see what the Bible has to say. Can we do that this morning? So what does the Bible say? And that's where we need to start, right? And I have to start with this. I cannot stand here and say or read a verse that in the Bible that says, Thou shalt not drink wine. It's just not there. It's not there. To certain groups, yes. 
there are commands, which you'll see in a moment. But as far as a universal command, like the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, those, those massive overarching commands, there is not one like that in Scripture. And I can't preach it that way. I'm not going to preach it that way. I want to say what the Bible says. Now, as I say that, you need to be careful. Because some, for some people who would be looking for justification, that statement would be enough. See, the Bible says we can't, so party on. Which is telling of the culture we live in, and we need to be aware of that. Pastor said, the Bible doesn't say that, so let's go. Whoa, 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 hold on. And sadly, many do just that. What I think is the best plan is let's see what the Bible says not with eisegesis and bringing preconceived ideas, but exegesis, which means pulling out what the Bible actually says. We'll set forth what Scripture says and we'll go from there. And I'm going to quote a lot of Scripture this morning. This is a massive subject. I can't fit into one sermon, but I don't want to string a month-long sermons on, on alcohol. We've got the holidays coming and I want to talk about some different things, but I'm, I'm going to quote a lot of Scripture, and you can take notes, or if we want to have some conversations on it later, great. I know more than I care to about the subject. <laughs> a lot of study. I know how they made wine, how they stored it, what they used it for. Before, I didn't know as much as I know now, so I'm going to try to share the snapshot of the whole and, and give a good idea, cross-section to help you understand. The Bible has a lot to say about wine. The Bible has a lot to say about strong drink, especially in the Old Testament, and we understand why. Thousands of years ago, you didn't have a lot of choices when it came what to drink. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have soda. They had just a few things. You had water, which if you lived by a stream or a spring was good. And so you'd get nice, fresh water. Not everybody did, right? So Sometimes you had good water or sometimes you had water that would grow stagnant if it's in a well or if it's in a cistern. and It would not uh, be fresh. It actually could grow bacteria. and You didn't always have a supply of fresh water. We want, a water, we want water, you go get a water bottle or, God forbid, turn on the tap or the hose if you're really feeling, feeling gutsy. Turn on the hose. I used to drink from the hose all the time. I think I'm just fine. But... We want water, we get it. It's not a big deal. Well, that's not always the case with, in most of human history, actually. You had milk, which would stay good for a day or two. I don't know. Not refrigerated. You had milk from goats or cows or whatever. So you had water, you had milk, or you had juice from grapes, from fruits that would be around and which, of course, in a desert climate, you could make juice from it, but it's only going to stay good so long. You could store it in different ways, but ultimately that juice is going to ferment and it's going to move from stages, starting with what we see in the Bible as new wine. You'll see that phrase in Scripture, which is either fresh juice or newly alcoholic sweet wine. It would move then into the wine and the strong drink category which is most addressed in scripture ultimately ending in vinegar which was not good for anything i don't like vinegar i don't like the smell just throw it out but that's where it ends up as it spoils and it goes bad okay 
And whether we like it or not, whether we're comfortable saying it or not, it is a staple of life in the Bible. It's all over Scripture. It's part of the harvest that is provided by God. And this is where we could go through. I'll just give you the gist. It talks about in Joshua and Deuteronomy, even in Exodus, that they would harvest grain and corn and wine, and that was by the hand of God. It was part of what they harvested. And God said, I'm going to provide that for you. I'm going to give you the harvest of those things. And wine was included. Vineyards dotted the landscape. We know some pretty famous vineyards, right? Like Naboth's vineyard. The one that I think is King Ahab. Or Ahaz. Either one of them. Coveted and he wanted it so bad that he put Naboth to death. Because it was a good vineyard that grew good grapes that weren't just for juice. It was for wine. Noah had a vineyard, right? As soon as he got off the ark, he planted a vineyard, and we know that went south. We'll get to that in a bit. But it wasn't just for making grape juice. These vineyards weren't just planted for making grape juice. It was to make wine, part of the harvest. So not only was it part of the harvest, but people drank wine. Yes, people drank wine in the Bible. Job is an important book to me. I quote it a lot because it's the first one written in the Bible. It's one of, it is the earliest book probably written down. So what you see in there is telling of what was going on in human history. Job chapter 1 verse 13 says this, And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. Put a hold on, because I want to address something that just came across your minds. Your thinking is skewed. I think it's most certainly skewed. Because some of you heard that, and immediately thought of people pounding beers like a frat party. Oh, they're just sitting drinking in the house and that's what's going on. You heard they're having a party. Most Americans hear that when we read something like that. They're sitting drinking wine in their brother's house. Man, they just may be going at it and they're all sitting around drunk. And If I had read they were sitting in their brother's house and eating and drinking coffee, a different scene comes to mind, doesn't it? Which is... That's more the case it would have been. That coffee scene is more the reality. Our culture has greatly warped this topic, and that is in our thinking. So anytime we, we read about somebody drinking wine, we're automatically going to this extreme saying, oh, they must just be pounding it and getting drunk. Just like that, when you heard that. That's not the case. No different than it would be to have a cup of coffee with dinner or a glass of Coke or whatever. It was a staple of life in that way. What about John chapter 2? That's a pretty big one, right? Water made the wine. John chapter 2, verse 9. We, we know the story, right? Everybody knows the story. Jesus is at a wedding and his mom comes to him and says, Hey, they've ran out of wine. So he says, Okay, get these two. I don't know if it's two. Get these big pots. Fill them up with water, fill them up to the brim, and then go serve. And God miraculously, it's His first miracle, miraculously creates something that was not there before. He turns water into wine, which you can't fake that. It's a totally different thing. God shows His creative power, and He makes something new. Okay? And John chapter 2, verse 9 says this, When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, 
The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. So what did Jesus do there? This may be controversial, but I'm going to go with what the Bible says. It says he made wine. It says he made wine. He said he made good wine. I think he took water and he made wine, just like the Bible says. I can't force it to say anything else. Even though I may want to, even though I may feel more comfortable if the Lord made grape juice, I don't think that's what he did. I think he made wine. Now, two things to address with that. These wedding feasts would last a week, and it was a community event, right? The whole town would come out, and they would celebrate together. We have an idea of it's like a keg party that's lasting a week. That's the wrong idea. What people would do, would they would, not only would the, the, the wedding party uh, provide some wine, but the rest of the, uh, the community would too as well. With whatever they had in the house, they would come and they would combine it. So you got people that might be bringing diluted wine or wine that was ready to spoil, and all, all goes into this mix, which could be good or bad. Probably less than desirable. What Jesus does, he shows up, boom, makes the best wine they've ever had, and that's why the guy says what he does. Wow, you saved the best until last, because Jesus made it good. Secondly, some people say, well, Jesus wouldn't do that because he's making those people sin. Jesus wouldn't make wine because they're all going to get drunk and that is making people sin. Well, is that what he did? Because we're assuming when we say that their, their whole intention was to get drunk and hammered and like this big giant party. Did he make people commit the sin of gluttony when he fed the 5,000? Because he said he made enough until they were full. Well, there are some people overate. We don't assume they overate, do we? We assume they ate just enough portions, which was what was good. And by the way, we never talk about gluttony, which is just about as big as a problem, right? But they ate until they were full. We assume the group of the 5,000 didn't overeat, but we assume this wedding party was just getting drunk. The substance is not sinful, it's what we do with it. Make sense? The substance itself is not sinful. And I've heard people say alcohol is sin. I don't believe that. Because, as we'll see in just a, mo a moment, the Bible actually speaks of wine as a blessing from God. It's the substance itself is not sinful. It's what we do with it. Just the same as food is not sinful, we can overeat and cause ourselves problems. I believe it is the same with wine. This was a normal cultural thing that Jesus did. Okay. What about Jesus? Don't shoot me. What about Jesus? Luke chapter 7 says this, For John the Baptist, this is Jesus speaking, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he hath the devil. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Now, we know that Jesus was neither a glutton nor a drunkard. But he doesn't say that he didn't. He doesn't say that he didn't. 
And if he partook in Passover, the Passover cups were celebrated with wine. I know that raises a lot of questions, but I, and you can ask me later, but I want to set out what the Bible says and handle it in an intelligent manner. This is a staple of life. This was part of life in both the Old and the New Testament. It's called out as a blessing from God. Proverbs chapter 3. Honor the Lord with thy substance, with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. And that can speak both of the juice and of the starting of the process. God says, you honor me, I'm going to bless you with this. Psalm 104. He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth, and wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face shine, and the bread which strengthened man's heart. He gives that. That's what that verse says. I can't make it say anything else, even though I might want to. That's what the Bible says. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. Culture check, merry does not mean inebriated or drunk, it just means good or pleasant. It was used for medicine, Luke chapter 10. The good Samaritan goes to the one who has fallen, and he bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, we're familiar with that. Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Wine was used. It could be used to sanitize water, some of the bacteria that grew in water, but it was also used as a medicine, an antiseptic. It was used as a painkiller. Do you remember Jesus on the cross? It says they gave him wine mixed with myrrh to drink, right? As a... Um, sedative or as a painkiller. Proverbs 31 says this, it is not for kings it is not for kings to drink wine nor the nor for princes strong drink lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any afflicted. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. This should not so sound so out of the ordinary we do it today, right? We give people morphine when they are hurt or they're ready to pass to ease the pain. And they would do so with wine in the Bible. They didn't have some of these substances, so they would use strong drink to do that. And those who are in poverty of misery, he says, give him some wine to make him feel a little better. We might be appalled at that. We might be appalled at the thought of encouraging that, and I'm not encouraging it but listen we're willing to do the same thing we like to hammer on this subject but we say nothing about the willingness of people to become addicted to opiates or narcotics for this very same reason because it's got a catchy little name and a bottle with a doctor's signature on it that says it's okay And people won't bat an eye when way too many, I think, of God's people live in an altered state of existence because of this. But we'll hammer down if somebody says something about a glass of wine. 
You understand how our thinking is skewed sometimes? That's what this writer of Proverbs is saying, using it in a medicinal form. It was used in worship. Melchizedek in chapter 14. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. It was a regular part of the temple worship. Nearly all of the sacrifices called for part of a hen of wine. That's a lot of information, I know, but it's there. That's what I'm saying. It's there. It's in Scripture. We cannot ignore it. And it was a staple of life. There are some people who were forbidden from drinking. And I find this interesting. Priests were forbidden from drinking. Leviticus chapter 10 says this. The Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when you go into the tabernacle of congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. The Lord says, priests, no. You're set apart to do something. No. Nazarites. Anybody ever heard of a Nazarite or the Nazarite vow? Something in Numbers. Samson took a Nazarite vow, though he messed it up. But people would take a Nazarite vow and it was meaning to separate themselves to him. Numbers chapter 6, verse 3. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar of wine, vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor even eat grapes, moist or dried. <laughs> you're staying away from all of it. You're not even eating a grape because you're so separated for the Lord's service. And we already read in Proverbs chapter 30 that the advice is, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor princes to drink strong drink. Hmm. Priests, kings, and those who are set apart for the service of God. I can't help but think of a passage in both Deuteronomy and 1 Peter. Your royal priesthood set apart for me. To do, he has made us kings and priests, doesn't Revelation say? Those set apart for the service of God were not to partake. Other than that, it was a staple of everyday life. It's there. I cannot say wine is sinful any more than food is sinful. It's there, and it's a normal part of culture. And again, when we read these things, we need to be careful not to force a 21st century definition on them. Just like when we read dancing in the Bible, it is not the same thing as you think of dancing today. Not even close. David danced unto the Lord. It's nothing that's going on anywhere around us. Okay? Or when we read slavery. You know how many times Paul said, when you, when you read and you're... Uh, Bible and sorry, when you read in your Bible and it says, I'm a servant of God, you know what he's really saying? I'm a bond slave to Jesus. That word brings up bad connotations because of our culture, and rightly so, right? We've had some bad things in our history. In biblical times, it's not a bad thing. People would put themselves in service to another, and that's what Paul says. I've put myself into the service of my Lord and Savior. When you read, they drank wine. Be careful we don't force the automatic assumption that they're going way too far because that's, that's not what's happened. We read of wine, we read of strong drink. We probably think of a bottle of wine, we think of strong drink like whiskey or Everclear or something like, like, like that, right? That's not necessarily what's going on. There is a difference. And like I said, I've gone down the rabbit hole, I've looked around, Learned a lot. Come back out to tell you what I think, uh, what I think these things mean. And I'm, I'm talking about ancient writings. The Talmud, the Mishnah, which are Jewish writings uh, that predate Christ. Things from Hammurabi's Law, writings from Plato and Plutarch, 
historical writings all address this. And what I understand is this. It was a relatively normal practice, relatively normal practice to dilute wine when drinking it. And so when you read strong drink in the Bible, it's most likely talking about full strength wine or wine that was ready to expire or mixed with something else. And when you read wine, it is most often going to be talking about a diluted state. It is what it is. It was a normal part of life that was not abused like we think of every time that we hear it. Now, here's where I want to change gears. There was a normal part of Jewish Middle Eastern culture. American culture is different, period. The Middle Eastern culture could partake of it without abusing it. Americans, we abuse it as part of our culture. I can say without hesitation, no one has a drink of wine today out of necessity. Oh, I don't know what to choose. Water, milk, or wine. Not the case, period. Grab a Coke. you got a choice. Literally, hundreds of them. You probably have a variety in your fridge, right? My fridge is stocked with sodas. I don't drink. Just in case one of you guys might come over. I don't like Coke Zero. Coke Zero's in my fridge. Makes it irritating when I run out of regular Coke. But I got something for you if you guys come over. I got a variety. It's, it's there. I don't have to say, oh, no, the water's bad. Oh, no, the milk is turned into yogurt. I got to have some wine. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. The vast majority, if not all of people today in America, drink it for its effects. They want to get a buzz. They want to relax. Or they want to get drunk. Maybe there's some who would enjoy a nice glass of wine with a steak. That is a small percentage, I believe. Just look around. Just look around. That's the goal going into it. It's not out of necessity. It's done because they want the effect. And that's going to lead to the next part of the discussion. The Bible does not say thou shalt not drink wine, but it It has some strong, crystal clear warnings on this. As many verses as you will read addressing the use of wine, you're going to find two more with the dangers of it. And it is clear in the wine that drunkenness is a sin. Drunkenness is a sin in the Bible. In fact, the first time wine is mentioned in the Bible is with Noah, who plants a vineyard, makes some wine, gets drunk, and it is not good. It leads to disaster. And again, the Old Testament is packed full, and it's really clear. I, I, I don't have time to include all the verses, but let me read you a few. Proverbs chapter 20. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. Whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. There is a way that it can be used in a wise manner, and there is a way that it can be used in a deceptive manner, and, who, and where it begins to take over. I believe it's Hosea uh, chapter 4 that says, wine can enslave the heart. Maybe you know people like that where they've been taken over by it. It's become, it's moved from a social thing to now they're in trouble. Alcoholism is a real thing. Proverbs chapter 23. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who hath babbling? 
Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. <laughs> who has problems? Who's babbling? Saying things they don't even know? Or who, who keeps getting hurt or falling down? Or what's going on? Those who tarry long at wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. It goes on to say, Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Snake. Bites like a snake. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea. Drunk people do dumb things. Like go to the bed in the middle of the ocean. Or he that lieth upon the top of a mast. Doing things they know they shouldn't, right? They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. He's talking about somebody who has become drunk. Isaiah chapter 5, Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine, and wine inflame them. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine, and men of strength that, to mingle strong drink. I know some people that are really proud of their drinking skills. <laughs> the Bible says, Woe! They are undone. It brings destruction. New Testament is just as clear. Both 1 Corinthians and Galatians, Paul states expressly that drunkards, those who participate in drunkenness, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, which is, I don't know how any clearer you can get. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. It's pretty clear. Don't be drunk. We're familiar with that. We've probably heard that before, and it really shouldn't need explanation. The problem is, we want to go and ask questions like, well, define drunk. How drunk is drunk? Just how inebriated do you have to be to qualify as drunk? Wrong question. Wrong question. If you have to be asking that, step away. Don't. Time is fleeting. Let me get to the point and to the text. I need to hit the, the stop button, the brakes. So it's okay to drink but not get drunk. Is that your message, Pastor? Is that what you're saying? What I'm doing is I'm giving you biblical information on the subject. And my answer to that question is no. And let me tell you why. The stance of Faith Baptist is abstinence from alcohol. While we do not say the Bible says thou shalt not, we firmly believe we should not. We are convinced that this is the most wise and God-honoring choice in the time, in the culture, in the climate that we live in, and there's a few reasons for that I hope to make clear. Number one, there's no need to. There is no need to. No one here needs to drink because of limited choice. You literally have hundreds of choices of what to drink with dinner. Have a Coke, not a beer. It works just the same. More importantly, 
is the first-hand experience we have with its devastation. I do not have to give you the statistics of broken homes because of alcohol or alcoholism or the abuse of alcohol. I do not have to give you the statistics of broken lives, broken families. I do not have to tell you about the rampant alcoholism that is throughout our nation. Of the accidents, the lives taken or ruined by this, whether it be by someone who is hopelessly addicted to it or someone who is simply partaking in a social manner, you know the damages that it can cause. You have people in your lives that have been touched with it. Maybe even you yourself know the damages of it. You know the problems. You just think it's never going to be you. You're the one person that can handle it. Everybody else might fall. I'll be fine. I'm not going to become a statistic. Said just about everyone else who did become a statistic. And I understand addictive personalities. I understand addictive tendencies. But I can say this with confidence. All that started with one. It started with one. Whether it was in some social setting or turning to it to find some kind of self-medication or self-help, it started with one. And those that find themselves in ruins at the end never thought they would find themselves there. So, we take what the Bible says, we present the truth of it, and we and I say, let's not even go there. Because first of all, it's never just one. It's never just one. It wasn't for me. I know this firsthand. I heard preaching from a pulpit that says, yeah, go ahead. It's fine. Just don't get drunk. And so you know what you think? Oh, wow. Cool. Sure, I can do it. I can handle it. No big deal. And then you find yourself puking your guts out saying, what in the world am I doing? This is what a Christian is? This is what I'm going to wear as, as a professing born-again child of God, that this is what I can do? This is what at least, really? Is this really what a Christian should be doing? No, it's not. It's not. And everyone else who knows that same experience can stand and say, you know what, it's not. Don't even go there. Don't even go. Start down that road. And that experience of mine is mild. We could go around this room and people can speak from experience of the devastation that alcohol will bring. And it started with just one drink. But you said it doesn't say we can't, Pastor. Well, God gave us a brain too and a discerning spirit to make some good decisions. You know, the Bible doesn't technically say a male and a female can't live together. It just says don't commit adultery or sexual immorality. But we, with our wise minds, say, hey, you know what? You probably shouldn't do that. So you stay away from the danger. It also says you can't run up and down the street in between cars. But we have a brain to use with good sense. 
And if we want to avoid the pain and the hardship that that can bring, I believe it's a wise thing to say no. It's a wise thing to say for this church, for my family, for my children, no, guys. Here's why. Here's what the Bible says. Here's why. And Satan and the world will use that Genesis 3 style of defense. Well, go ahead. It's not that bad. You're not going to die. Look in fact on all you're missing out. Look at all these people having good times. You can only have that kind of a good time if you have a beer. Other than that, your parties are not as fun. Your outings are not as fun unless you have that. Look at how good it is. Did he do the same thing in the garden? Have a bite. You're not going to die. In fact, God's keeping you down because he knows what you're missing. That pressure's going to be there. Remember what Proverbs says? In the end, it bites like a snake. In fact, Solomon himself said this, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, end of his life, wisest man ever by God. He said, I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom. He says, I'm just going to follow this path. What does he end up saying? Behold, it's all vanity, vexation of spirit, and there's no profit under the sun. It's futile, it's futility, it's grasping for the wind, there's no profit. I think we should probably listen to a wise man. And now we come to the text. Longest introduction ever. <laughs> we come to the text, and this is where I hang my hat. This is where I hang my reasoning for standing on abstinence. Romans 14, 21. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything, whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. I could make a case for exercising biblical liberty in that way, but there's a greater effect I must be aware of. What I do affects others. What you do affects me. We're a family here, right? Brought together to glorify God and to help one another through this life. And the choices you make, whether you might be free to make them or not, affect other people. And me... Partaking in alcohol can cause some damage in other people. This can cause people to stumble, to fall away, to fall into weakness. Again, listen, man. We've got people who've lived lives filled with drinking and drunkenness before they met Jesus. Then they come to Him. They're saved. Their sins are forgiven. They're made a brand new person. they got a brand new life. How, what happens if they come into a church that... All they do is talk about all the drinking they did on the weekend and freely promotes it. What kind of effect is that going to have? These are Christians. They act just like my buddies in the world. They're no different than anybody else. What kind of a witness is that? It's not. In fact, it could damage. And if they had a problem before, do you understand the promotion of that, saying it's okay, could send them back down a path of destruction they might not recover from? There are some people I know that one drink would be the end of them.
Paul says, I'm not going to do it. I will not eat meat, drink wine, do anything. It's going to cause my brother to stumble. I'm not talking about hurt feelings or, or sissies. <laughs> this word comes to mind. <laughs> We're talking about damage. If it's going to cause damage, somebody to stumble, to fall to where they can't get up again, I won't do it. I stand with Paul on that. I stand with God who inspires Paul to write this. We will not. And again, I know the effects. I know the effects that it can have on a young person's life who could hear or see the promotion or condoning of drinking alcohol. I know the stumbling and the weakness that will lead to, as others in this room will say as well. So I want to make it clear. We say, no, we will not. We want to stay away from it. Because it always ends badly. So no matter what the pressure may be, no matter what you may hear those around you say or see them do, take it from all of us here who know, don't. Stay away from it. You know, just the same way your parents told you not to touch the stove or the fire. Matthew learned that lesson when he was two. I'm barbecuing, man. It's red hot. Red hot. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Keeps lifting his hand. I'm telling you, don't touch it. Just keeps doing it. So maybe you question my parenting skills. I decided, well, I'm going to let him learn his lesson. So on goes his little fingers to the grill. I heard, <laughs> Poor kid. Got his fingers off the grill. He's crying and screaming. But now he knows. Don't touch the barbecue. It's hot. Some of us have learned that lesson with alcohol. That's not that big a deal. No, it's a problem. It's a problem. I just pray our hearts would be in the right place about this. That is the message we as this church preach. There is freedom to believe what you want to believe. This is a fact of Scripture. But we preach abstinence. We believe that as born-again servants of God, we will not because it's the wisest and most God-glorifying, honor, uh, um, God-glorifying and honoring decision that we can make. Because of what Paul says right here. We don't want to cause anybody else to stumble, to be made weak, or to be offended. Can we have differing opinions on it? Sure. But I hope that we have, even if we do, that we can stay united in this matter of discernment and preach and teach that we ought to conduct ourselves in a way that not only glorifies God, but has grace and love with each other that edifies. Paul says we follow things that edify or build up one another. And I believe the best way to do that is to preach and practice abstinence. Let's bow our heads, we'll be closed. Father, I thank you for this day. Lord, I pray you take this message. Use it as you see fit. Lord, I don't know how it may have touched hearts of others or maybe hit on issues we're dealing with in our own hearts. I don't know, Lord, you know. I pray that you would use uh, the message to your, to your will and to your doing, Lord. 
So now as we come to a time of invitation, Lord, I pray that you would draw us as you see fit, Lord. Again, I thank you for all you've done. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.